0: Welcome everybody back to The Subliminal Show. Uh, today, I have the honor of sitting down with Alexander. Uh, we knew each other a, a long time ago and almost stay in a galaxy far, far away. Um, but he was willing and uh, to come on to the show and just talk about the stuff that he's done in his uh, undergrad as well as his master's program, uh, continuing with his ministry uh, at his church as well as just a heart for the neurodivergent and lgbtq plus community um, has been uh, an incredible just heartwarming thing for me to see his love and compassion for uh, uh, these different types of communities um, so Thank you, Alexander, for, for being here. And is there anything you want to add to that introduction? Or
1: No, I think that was all great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is our first time seeing each other in a long time, and it's good to see your face again.
0: Well, whatever the next hour entails, <laughs> um, we'll be covering anything from kind of neurodivergence and disability justice, as well as this idea of queering and queer justice as well. Um, that's just been something that, as Alexander and I talked about, the things that he's passionate about and wanting to, you know, as a part, of, a big part of his ministry. And so I just want to just hear more about that and why, you know, why why this area and what kind of brought him to be so passionate about these two different communities. Um, but we'll go ahead and start our topic, our first topic, with neurodivergence. So if you could just explain for us just what is
1: Neurodivergence. Yeah, so neurodivergence is really more of an umbrella term that just describes really any interest or instance in which the brain functions different from what is considered typical or most common. And this can include like mental illness, cognitive disabilities, really any phenomenon that isn't reflective of the majority experience. I know for me, it includes like neurodevelopmental disorders such as autism and ADHD, but it can also include eating disorders, obsessive compulsive disorders, PTSD, anxiety, depression, really any of these uh, different diagnoses that you would see in the DSM or through other diagnostic criteria, the list goes on.
0: Yeah. Okay. So it is a kind of a, a category of... Uh, Categorized by the DSM, kind of that, mm-hmm. that kind of area of, of mental health.
1: Right. Okay,
0: okay. So then what about the neurodivergent community really drew you to it?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, part of me wants to say that, oh, I saw the issues in my society, wanted to do something about it. But I think mm-hmm. a lot of it was just being forced into it by my own Uh, diagnoses, my own experience with ableism, Mm -hmm. and it wasn't until I already built up those tools based on my own identity that I was able to really understand just how prevalent ableism is in society. I know that I was diagnosed really early on in elementary school with ADHD, but it took really a degree in psychology and about Re-pan- panic attacks to uh, actually see a psychologist for the anxiety diagnosis and the autism diagnosis. Mm. And really, the more I connected mm. to my identity and my community, the more I was able mm. to get to know other people who are neurodivergent and different diagnoses and learn about their experience with ableism and inaccessibility in the world. And so I think just hearing and understanding mm. these stories gave me the tools and the passion to really advocate for the community as a whole instead of just my own 504 and iep plans and accommodations in yeah. school yeah. yeah i
0: really like that and that really speaks into what the purpose of this show is of willing to listen to other people mm-hmm. i love how you've been an active part of that just listening to the people that are around you and hearing their stories and being able to be a part of that in some way shape or form Um, That's really cool. What kind of drives you to be? uh, Well, I guess let's first, if you could define ableism for us.
1: Yeah. So I would say ableism is another umbrella term just to describe any sort of prejudice in society or discrimination or just animosity that's specifically directed at disabled people, neurodivergent people, people with chronic illnesses, okay. and specifically their experience with those different things. So it can be anything from getting really angry at someone for having a disabled parking place sticker, or a parking mm. spot ticker sticker to just advocating for more inaccessibility and getting mm. mad that there are is a ramp or stairs used to be or anything in that regard mm. so it can really be mm. one of those terms that is experienced in a variety of different ways and can be understood in mm. a variety of different ways i'm sure different okay. people would have different understandings of what counts as ableism but i think mm. most of the time it's those people who are disabled or neurodivergent who are really tasked with being able to identify that and call it out when they experience it.
0: Okay. Okay. So it's kind of the, the wanting to restrict or possibly uh, that coming across as not wanting to be create a community that's accessible to people that are all in a variety of different spectrums right. of whether it's neurodivergence or um, something else, but being able to come alongside and equally be able to help mm-hmm. individuals towards their goals,
1: right? Exactly. Okay. Okay.
0: And so, what kind of drives you to be an advocate for the community?
1: Well, I think, kind of, as I said, it's always going to be based a little bit on my own need and my own uh, desire for accessibility. But I Mm -hmm. think that a bit of it is also authenticity, that the more educated others are about disabilities, the more I'm able to be myself in a given space, the more I don't have to uh, pay attention to how I'm controlling my body, if I'm making eye contact, if I'm moving Mm -hmm. a certain way. But I think I also do care about others and those in my community. And it's one of those settings that just isn't really talked about. Now, as a queer person, which I'll talk about later, all I have to do is really ask someone uh, how they feel about my existence and they'll give me a direct answer. But ableism is a bit harder to pick out because nobody Mm -hmm. really tries to be ableist or claims to be ableist and Mm. no one really claims to dislike disabled people. So it's more of that situation of implicit bias and saying Mm -hmm. things that they don't mean or that they don't understand the impact. So through education, I just feel that we're able to spread the word about what uh, disabled people experience because I've really never seen it taught about or preached about Mm -hmm. even through my seminary and undergrad uh, education and I just want to help fill that gap. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I think there's a a huge gap of just a lack of education around this area. And it's really cool that you've been able to be an advocate for that. Um, As kind of a specific example, and this is something uh, I just came up with because you were uh, just scrolling through your social media. But you have been a bit aggregate for removing the puzzle piece as kind of a key thing for autism. Could you explain that and kind of your reasoning behind that?
1: Yeah, of course. So one of the reasons that I have some animosity towards the puzzle piece icon is just because of its origin. So both the puzzle piece and... The Light it Up Blue campaign are products of the organization Autism Speaks, and that's mm-hmm. really a group that focuses more on trying to cure autism, trying to mm-hmm. depict it as something terrifying that you need to be afraid of rather than... A demographic that you need to accept. You could even go on YouTube and look up some of their old advertisements and see how they're portrayed, like stranger danger awareness type of situations. So, the puzzle piece, it was also originally created just because it described, oh, autistic people are puzzling, and that's why it is there. And so, being able to combat that idea that no, we're not just puzzling, we're actually really open to telling you what we experience and similarly with the lighted up blue campaign that it came from autism speaks and it really derived from the idea that they think autism is mainly seen in boys and so it's a bit uh grounded in that sexist notion and so by moving past the autism speaks rhetoric we can really focus more on actual autistic voices instead of this big organization just trying to enforce eugenics and different ways to uh, limit autism instead of accommodate or provide accessibility for us.
0: Okay. Okay. It definitely makes a lot of sense. So uh, how would, for those of us who are not quite fully educated, how do we determine which kind of organizations are actually being helpful and which ones aren't?
1: Yeah, I think uh, general uh, idea is to look at the boards, look at who is in leadership in those positions. Are they having uh, leadership positions that are mainly autistic people or members of that community? Or are they mainly neurotypical people that are just making decisions for us? And otherwise, if there aren't uh, easy Your easily accessed resources regarding that you can always find communities or resources written by autistic people online that will often speak to different organizations i know just off the top of my head there are organizations such as the autism self-advocacy network and the autistic women and non-binary network that are really focused on highlighting autistic leadership and really promoting that uh, listening to the stories, as I talked about earlier. And so those are two organizations that really focus on our voices instead of really suppressing autistic tendencies like Autism Speaks.
0: And so kind of in that vein of making these, these kind of mistakes when it comes to, you know, like you talked about how ableism is or being ableist is, Almost more times than not, accidental, mm-hmm. and just a lot of just lack of education. But what are some of the biggest mistakes that people make when talking about the neurodivergent community, or just like you mentioned, the puzzle piece and lighted up blue? Are there any other things that come to mind as just a big thing that we assume is right, but mm-hmm. may not be?
1: Yeah, I think that every different diagnosis comes with its own stereotypes, its own misconceptions, and the general experience is simply, as you said, like, how are they talking about us? If they're talking about Mm -hmm. us without us, as the typical phrase goes, then it's not typically going to actually listen to our voices, especially in the neurodivergent community when a lot of people can make the mistake of infantilizing people, of seeing them as less capable of caring for themselves, then if they wanting to find an expert, they'll go to a special education teacher or a parent or a therapist instead of actually going to someone with that diagnosis. and instead of coming to those in our proximity they should really just come to us to listen to our stories and i think that's something that is so very accessible in today's world whether it's youtube tiktok books uh, blogs articles i think that there's always stories that can be heard i think Another tendency kind of alongside that is the tendency to lump neurodivergence together when it's one of the most diverse communities. I'm not going to have much experience with OCD or eating disorders or schizophrenia because I don't have those diagnoses and those stories are going to have to come from people who do. And I think that's why these labels and these terminology are really helpful for us when it comes to finding our community and just sharing our stories with one another. I think that a lot of times people can misconstrue what these labels mean because they're often used to force us into a box. But for us, it's really known uh, as a way of getting to know the individual, which should always be the priority. I know one of the yeah one of the ca- common misconceptions I've experienced a lot is simply the statement oh you don't look autistic and. The truth is, yes, I do. And I know that I do because so many autistic people have told me that I do because they can identify me easily. I think that a lot of people just think I don't look autistic because they've learned to see just one stereotypical version by watching Atypical or The Good Doctor, and their idea of autism is simply limited, the same way people will come away from horror movies with a really scary version of what dissociative identity disorder looks like or schizophrenia when all of these stories are just one stereotype that are being portrayed. So being able to get to know the individual uh, on a deeper level than the label is a great way to just start the conversation and get to learn one another's stories this is one of the difficulties and the harmful trends that can come with just pathologizing an entire demographic.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so really allowing those individuals that even though neurodivergence is such a massive, you know, it encompasses a lot of different disorders um, and diagnoses that di- diagnoses right. <laughs> good old, good old English language there. The individual stories can't be lost mm-hmm. and they shouldn't be lost right. in the by lumping them together. In, in those, in those boxes, like you talked about, and I love how you brought up how Hollywood is really good at, you know, highlighting mm-hmm. the like stereotypical things of different diagnoses. And, and yeah, um, Don't don't use Hollywood. Nobody (laughs) use Hollywood for their (laughs) listen to these real stories.
1: And there are Um, Yeah, there are some great representations in media, mainly those that are portrayed by autistic actors or autistic creators. mm, I know there's a Disney short called Loop that's available, that is actually created with the Autistic Self Advocacy Network. And so it's really reflective of our identities. Same with the Netflix show Special, where the autistic character is actually portrayed by an autistic actor. And so being able to listen to their portrayal of their own identity is a lot more accurate than it will be if a non-autistic person is portraying it in a show.
0: Yeah, so it kind of goes a lot back, ties, in, ties, ties a lot back into our first conversation of with the different organizations that are, you know, claiming to advocate and, and you know, help. But if they're not, you know, if, if the people that carry that diagnosis with them or, you know, have mm-hmm. autism or ADHD, it, it's hard to really advocate because you don't fully understand right. what's going on. Okay. okay. So you talked a little bit about this idea of like putting people in a box and pathologizing. Um what what has kind of been your experience with that? Has there been some more benefits to having a label or has it been pretty harmful of like you talked about being shoved into a box?
1: <laughs> Yeah, I think it's one of those trends where I talked about the label more as a sense of understanding and a insight into community rather than anything else. And for example, this is why I actually have a more outdated version of the DSM behind me because I like being able to rely on those labels. And is something that continuously grows and evolves. I know the last version of the DSM used Asperger's alongside autism, which was really named after a Nazi scientist who would separate the two demographics. And before that, uh, queer identities were included in the de- DSM as a mental illness. And even before that, there was a mental illness to describe slaves that wanted to escape from their masters because that was seen is such a uh, illogical thing when in reality it's simply different people existing. And so I think that labels can be useful as long as they're created to reflect experiences instead of created to limit or trap experiences into one identity. And I think pathology, yeah, in terms of being used in the medical sense or the sense to, quote unquote, cure can be helpful when the disability or disorder itself is causing pain. For example, with me, like when it comes to my autism, what I really need is accessibility and education, and that's a major part of my advocacy work. However, when it comes to my anxiety disorder, I really need medication and things that'll keep my heart from racing to the point where I think I'm having a heart attack. And for ADHD, it's really a combination of the both where uh, without my medication, I can get severe headaches. But even with the medication, there's a lot that needs to be done in terms of education and accessibility in school settings or work settings. So it really depends on how much pain comes from the disorder or disability itself, such as with chronic illnesses, and how much pain is just coming from society and the way disabled people are treated or provides an accessibility. I mean, with any other vital organ causing pain, we would easily accept medication and the brain is just the same way. But to assume that even the majority of our struggles come from our disability itself would be to ignore all the inaccessibility. It's kind of where uh, another thing that Autism Speaks is notorious for is what's called ABA therapy or uh, Applied Behavioral Analysis, which is essentially conversion therapy for autistic people and serves to really uh, train these autistic traits out of someone. And that focuses on the wrong thing instead of, really accepting autistic traits and learning to normalize them in society, we pathologize them and teach them as something that needs to be eradicated instead of accepted. I know one of the common misconceptions is that autism is categorized as a communication disorder. But when it comes to communication, I've always been able to code switch between neurotypical and autistic people because I had to growing up. Whereas a lot of neurotypical people won't put the same effort in simply because they don't have to as the majority demographic. And so being able to recognize that accessibility is a universal task instead of just something that is the responsibility of the disabled community is a great way to move past the pathologizing paradigm to this more inclusion of neurodiversity and acceptance of different brain types, so long as that brain type isn't directly causing pain itself. Okay.
0: So really separating the, what's, what's causing pain, like you talked about the anxiety is that is, that's overwhelming. And that's very like a powerful thing that, you know, you want to be able to take care of. And, and you mentioned and absolutely love. And, and that's what we try as a, at least, at least I do as a, as a counselor in training of that. The brain is just as vital as every other part of our body. And I love how you've spoken to. Just, you know, yeah, we, we go to the doctor and we go get different medications or, you know, we do things to when we are we're in pain, but we oftentimes and, and don't do that for when our mind is the same way. And so right. I really love that.
1: Yeah, it's just an idea of examining the cause. Like, what is causing this pain? Is it the disability itself or is it the inaccessibility? And if it's the inaccessibility, then fix that.
0: but kind of taking those pathologizing statements and using them not as a as a put people in a box and say this is your diagnosis and we Mm -hmm. want to cure you but giving that education and saying you know what here are some ways that you can adapt and begin to know Mm -hmm. learn about that you know you're gonna feel different from the people that are around you but here's why and there's an answer does that sound accurate
1: yeah and i think exactly giving those tools also to the neurotypical community in addition yeah. to those with neurodivergence yeah, yeah, that absolutely. it is often our uh prerogative that we have to adapt to our different s- situations but i think the ideal society would be one where we are already adapted because the society isn't just built Mm. for the majority demographic, but rather it's built for us as well.
0: Absolutely. So what are some practical ways that just individuals on on either side of neurodivergent, neurotypical um, can help advocate for the neurodivergent community?
1: Yeah, I think uh, one of them is the idea of language. I think... We do tend to get a little bit into language in a more distracting sense where people create terms like differently abled uh, in order to act like that's a huge issue or they'll say, oh, use person with autism instead of autistic person when we really never asked for that. But at the same time, language can be important when we're actually referring to disability in our society. For example, like when we reference disability, are we referencing it as a human identity or as a bad thing? I know the church is notorious for doing this a lot in hymns where we use blindness and deafness or even lameness as metaphors for ignorance or inferiority. And it's the same way in modern speak where someone will claim to be so ADHD just because they're distracted or they'll claim to be OCD simply for being tidy. When that not only portrays these diagnoses by their stereotypes, but it really describes it just as a bad thing that can be reduced to an insult instead of a full demographic. And I think as a society, we've already moved past the R slur and using that in common speak. But at the same time, we can still use words like spastic or ADHD or autistic as insults themselves instead of finding more accurate terminology to describe them. And then just the thing that I said earlier about education, that there are always organizations that you can give money to, like the Autistic Women and Nonbinary Network or Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, but ultimately the real education comes from learning from neurodivergent people. Now, I know that I'm specifically called to education, and other than that, I'm a big advocate of not putting the burden on neurodivergent people to teach others. But so many already have shared their stories, as I talked about with books, articles, blogs, YouTube channels, poems, spoken words. Being able to access this material online, really there's more content than could be consumed in a lifetime. And so the best way to advocate for others is to just listen to their voices and their stories, and not just the voices of neurotypical people who have researched or merely witnessed our identity in their work setting or in their families, but actually those of us who have experienced it ourselves. Okay.
0: That's cool. Well, thank you for that insight. And I, right. <laughs> I greatly appreciate that and being willing to to speak into not only your own, a little bit of your own story, but also be able to be an, an advocate for this, this community. All right. So we'll go ahead and transition into queering and kind of queer justice. So if mm-hmm. you just wouldn't mind just telling us and defining what is queering.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, even regarding the term queer, long before it was associated with the LGBTQIA plus community, it meant strange or abnormal. And when our society is built around this binary, gender-driven, heterosexual-oriented ideal, anything outside of that uh, that mold is by nature rebellious in some regard. It can be really easy for people to see the sudden addition of queer characters in media or queer interpretation of old material is merely woke or uh, intentional in some regard. When in reality, it's just the natural prog- progression of art reflecting humanity. It was never that queer people didn't exist before, but we simply weren't portrayed in media and our voices were silenced. So queering is the act of combating this bias and this normativity that has portrayed queerness as merely a fringe group for so long. By queering media or literature or society itself, We challenge the notion that heterosexual or cisgender identities are the only quote-unquote normal. And we challenge the idea that society should only be built for those people. We can see that we've normalized this kind of mythical concept of normality, or as Audre Lorde calls it, the mythical norm. To the extent that black characters, female characters, queer characters, or disabled characters are seen as an attack or an intentional effort to farther an agenda rather than an exodus from the agenda that's already at play. In reality, life does have black, female, queer, and disabled people. A lot of times, more than one of those identities can be in the same person like with me. And art is finally being able to reflect that reality. It's the same way with interpretations of history or scripture or old documents where we aren't making everything gayer or are you changing the past to reflect our narrative, but rather we're just removing the bias that has limited historical interpretations to just one demographic. So by querying society, we normalize the the abnormal, we reject the notion that this one experience is the standard, and it's kind of the same concept with the term neuroqueer, where uh, society isn't, or this term isn't just about being neurodivergent and queer at the same time, but rather querying our society in regards to the neurotypical uh, mold and the neurotypical standard. And so being able to claim that the tendency of our society to portray certain communication styles or certain Uh, ideals of professionalism or classroom settings uh, to just one neurotype is really the source of our struggles, as I said earlier. So by neuroqueering society, we really assert that it isn't just the responsibility of our demographic to appease Neurotypical typical standards, but rather the the responsibility of everyone to create a more accessible environment, challenging these barriers that only exist to keep neurodivergent people separate and apart. And so by querying things in different regards, we just challenge the ideas that have always been put in place and really embrace that uh, fringe demographic as really just a normal part of humanity and a normal part of our history.
0: Okay. So it really is just bringing to, to focus that, you know, this isn't something new. It's been a part of our history for a very long time. We're just now being a little bit more okay with bringing it Mm. into more art forms and into media and into, into Hollywood. And so it's, it's wanting to not Mm. be like, Oh, we're, you know, making it gay, but just like, no, we're making it the way it's always been. It's been, it's been this way for a very long time. So what does it mean to be queer? I know you talked a little bit about this, what you were just saying, but is there anything else that you'd want to add?
1: Yeah, I think in general, especially in reference to the LGBTQIA plus community, it's sort of like neurodivergent in that it's an umbrella term to describe someone whose sexual orientation isn't heterosexual, their gender identity isn't the same as what they were assigned at birth or their romantic attraction is not merely heteroromantic. And this last distinction is something a lot of times used by people on the asexual spectrum just to differentiate between sexual attraction and romantic attraction. And so I think just like over time, this acronym has gotten so big because people have found more terms or created more terms to describe their experience. and often these terms can blend together and the term queer allows people to either embrace this identity while still questioning or still trying to find the right term or just being able to assert a generalized view of their experiences without constantly having to define to define a niche uh, experience and use niche terminology every time they introduce themselves. I know that uh, in the past that a lot of people have been uh, called queer as a slur, as an insult, especially older members of the community. And so I try not to always use it when I'm in new settings, just because I don't know who has been harmed by those terms. But for the most part, especially by the younger generation, it has been reclaimed as a term of pride rather than an insult to describe their identity.
0: So it's kind of been this reclaimed label to be able to have people identify themselves and in in some way, even if they feel like they don't fit into another um, category, I guess. Is that the right word? Yeah,
1: exactly. and. Yeah, and especially now, as I said, queer originally meant to strange or abnormal, and it used to be a really bad thing to be, and we're making it in our society, so it's not so bad to be strange or weird or different anymore. And so just being to embrace that weird is uh, a very large trend of our generation.
0: Yeah, I think that's absolutely true, and I think there's definitely some... Some incredible value in that, especially from a mental health mm-hmm. perspective, of of there is there's part of of this that allows individuals to really be, you know, okay with they feel different than than the the normal. Um and maybe starting right. to to find out that there are there are a lot more non normal people out there that you can that everyone can be normal with. Does that make sense? Like exactly.
1: <laughs> that, that, that all yeah. track. <laughs> Oh, it is about finding belonging yeah. and finding community. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, so similarly to the neurodivergent, mask, can I can ask the same question I'm just like, what are some common misconceptions that people have of of queer and or the LGBTQIA plus community?
1: Yeah, I think uh, I mean the most stereotypical and the most well known misconception is this idea of choice of thinking that. It's something that someone chooses to be instead of something that's inherent to their identity. And I think that that's probably the biggest hurdle that I've experienced when enduring or facing homophobia is that many will refuse to believe me. And I think a big part of it is because many people were introduced to the queer community, not in health class or science class or history class, but in a church that isn't necessarily accepting. And in calls to hurt the queer community. And really a lot of people have latched on to that image that was first presented to them. And I think the other generalized misconception is just over sexualizing the community until the point that everything queer is seen as sexual, like whether it's a pride parade or drag queen story hour or just a queer character in a TV show. And I think that's because they've only heard queerness talked about from this notion of man shall not lie with man without realizing that that term homosexual wasn't even added in the into the Bible until 1946. And so for those of us in the community, sex is really only just a small part of our identity. I think that queerness, in general, is just defined by that first flutter in our stomach when we realize that we're different, um, by the hatred and bullying that we face, but also the community that surrounded us and protected us from this hatred, as well as the violence we see on the news, the fight to control our own bodies, and even just the triumph of finally being able to feel proud in our own skin. Yeah, I think, uh, especially from the ministry perspective, that we don't just see queerness in these uh, uh, same-sex relationships like King David and Jonathan, but we see it in the strength of Daniel when the law was created specifically to harm him, or in the journey of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who went through a name change, went through a fiery furnace. And the bravery of Queen Vashti, who refused to have her body sexualized and controlled by others, even though it meant giving up her power. And so all of these characters aren't necessarily queer in our sense today, but they reflect the same struggles and experiences that our community has faced. And so I think in regards to misconception, we've been taught to only know that a character in a book or TV show is queer if we hear it explicitly stated or we see them kiss the same gender. But in reality, queerness is so much more than that.
0: Um, So it is really broadening the, well, not not really broadening, but... I guess, expanding the mindset of the sense that it's not just having to do with with sex. And but that's not what the LGBTQIA plus community is. Yes, it is a, a part of it, but it's not like the right. main thing.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think it's the same as we talked about with neurodivergence, that it's a task of getting to know the individual. And that takes a lot of effort. Especially if you don't know someone that well.
0: Um, I, That actually leads great into our next question because <laughs> uh, we talked about a little bit, but the emphasis of the subliminal show is to listen and learn from others. Um, And mm-hmm. you've already talked about that. This is a really an important mindset to take when learning and listening from from others. Um, is there any additional advice that you would you would offer when listening to a queer individual's story?
1: Yeah, I think, yeah, I talked about how as an autistic person, I wouldn't be able to speak to the experiences of someone who is bipolar or has dissociative identity disorder. But at the same time, I wouldn't even be able to speak to the experiences of someone else who is autistic because I'm not them. And it's the same way here, where I'm not going to be able to speak to trans identities or intersex identities, but even other gay people like me who were raised in a different social setting, maybe with a less accepting family or church or a school that endured more bullying, I'm not gonna be able to speak to those experiences. So it's important to really understand that age old phrase that if you've met one queer person, then you've met one queer person. That idea that each individual you meet is just that, an individual. And so labels are of course really helpful for organizing experiences and getting to know our community. But it's also experience both for queer and non-queer people alike to listen to those stories because I can learn just as much from a trans person about their story than you can or that another cisgender person can, because I don't have those experiences. I think it's just how we're able to grow to more fully understand humanity. I think. Because simply, I mean, going back to the ministry component, as a Christian, I believe that humanity is made in the image of God. And for that to be true, then we all have to be made in the image of God. And so when we grow to more understand more of humanity as a whole, then we also gain a more holistic understanding of who God is and God's full identity as reflected in God's creation of humanity. And it's kind of like that motif of a mosaic or a stained glass window when only by understanding each individual piece that we can really see the full picture.
0: Yeah, I really like that, that wanting to expand, see the bigger picture. Right. Um, and then what have kind of been Again, kind of this similar questions, just different topic, but what have been some of your purposes and reasonings to want to advocate for the, the queer community?
1: Yeah, and it's, it's a similar answer where I didn't really have a choice at first. Then when people learned that I was queer, they would message me to tell me how wrong I was or living in sin. So I quickly became an expert on sexuality, queerness, and the Bible because I knew I needed to be. I learned that I can really have a degree in psychology, a master's degree in divinity and theology and a a lifetime experience of being queer and being surrounded by different queer stories. And people would still see themselves as more knowledgeable just because they're straight and more confident that their belief in my existence uh, outweighs my years of study and and experience. And so I started to wear more rainbows and pride accessories so people would know that I was gay before I began to trust them. I started to advocate for my community in order to survive as an individual. And so my place in the queer community, both as a gay person and as an ally, has also really been intricately tied to my ministry because that's where it came up. I never really knew queerness outside of the suffering my community has endured at the hands of the church. And I've watched so many of my friends be hurt over and over again. So as someone in ministry, if I'm called to service, then I'm absolutely called to justice as well. And the beginning of my call to ministry was really grounded in my friends who were harmed by the church. And so I want to advocate for the queer community because I've experienced the very, very best of the church and also the very worst of the church. And I believe that everyone experience, uh, deserves to experience the best. And no one should really have to fear a ministry that's based on love. And I think that means just changing the church from the inside, as I am trying to do, and just create a world in general where queer people can live safely and happily in their wider community, instead of just finding those hidden underground places to be themselves.
0: Yes. Yeah. So really, yeah, like like you talked about with neurodivergence and advocating for that, wanting to create a safe space, a space that is well-educated and is willing to say you know you are loved and cared for here in this space
1: yeah exactly okay
0: and then kind of just wrapping up what are just some practical ways that individuals like me could help advocate for the queer community
1: yeah i think it's really just the same thing as before of listening to the stories and growing and that knowledge uh, as I talked about the different uh, autistic-related organizations that I'm familiar with, there are also different uh, foundations like the Trevor Project that seeks to help queer youth at risk of suicide. Or here in Chicago, there's the Chicago Nine Ministry that helps queer teens who have been kicked out of their homes or have either run away from abusive environments. I know that ACLU and the human rights campaign seek to help from that legal standpoint of challenging challenging laws that put our safety at risk. But at the same time, yeah, money can only do so much and more can be done by just passing along these stories. Uh, From that psychological perspective, there's an idea called the mere exposure effect that shows that. And simply being around someone different than you or listening to those stories can reduce animosity and sharing stories helps to humanize those that society often depicts as inferior. So being able to, as I said, listen and then teach others uh, what you hear Uh, It's really helpful for the queer community because it means that the burden doesn't always fall on us to be those teachers. Uh, And we're able to simply focus more on living our life and teaching when we have to to survive. And that's really what it is, is that it's always been a form of survival, whereas for allies, it's more of a choice. And so being able to constantly advocate for our existence can be exhausting. So having allies who are able to do that for us is a way to just give us a moment to breathe. So I think, yeah, as we change as a society, our language does as well. It can be really easy to become defensive as of different terms as woke or an agenda of a haste. But I think that Really, the one mantra to leave off with is that if if someone tells you something hurts, it's not your place to tell them it doesn't. That that's really the best that anyone could do is just don't try to hurt people. That making mistakes is always going to happen, but if you're specifically calling someone by the wrong pronouns just because you want to see them suffer, that you're specifically creating this one law because you think it'll cause the most amount of pain, then that's not what we're called to do as humans, as Christians, or really it's just people. We live in a world where I think people can sometimes become distracted by their own convenience over another person's pain, and so being able to just remember that those around us matter so much more than our convenience or our our, uh, beliefs even. That I mean, I would refer to someone by a different name or pronoun every day if it just meant that they would feel a little bit more loved. And I think the same can be true for any community or any people that being able to call them by the name they prefer, call them by The term that most uplifts them is just the closest way to show your love for that person. And it's something that applies to the neurodivergent community, that applies to different people from different countries and different races, that just being able to listen and grow and love one another is the step towards a better society.
0: Well, thank you, Alexander, for once again being willing to just, just share part of your story as well as just your passions for these two different communities. And obviously, I know as the, the loving and caring individual that you are, your, your love and compassion goes <laughs> to anyone and everyone, just sharing that, that love to as many people as you can. Um, but yeah, I thank you for, for being willing to come on and just, just talk and share your story. And is there anything else that you'd like to, to
1: add before we wrap up? I think I'm okay. I know that uh, we talked a bit about this one website that I've been creating, and that just goes back to the idea of terms where it's not an objective resource in any means, but it's something that is just full of the words and terms I wish I had known growing up as an autistic person that helped me better understand my experiences. And so being able to use that website, which can be in the description box below to better understand your autistic friends, better understand your own identity if you're exploring who you are is a great way to really just begin that conversation. And it's also a medium where you can reach out to me if you have any questions, any stories you want to share, or just thoughts, because being able to have those conversations and asking genuine questions born out of curiosity is the strongest and most straightforward path towards learning that I think is ever possible.
0: Yeah, as Alexander said, all those links will be in the description. Um, and yeah, like he said, if you want to reach out and have questions, uh, he, is, he is welcome and ready for them. Um, but yeah, thank you everybody for listening and watching. Um, we're on YouTube, we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook. Like, subscribe, comment, all of the typical things you say. <laughs> um, but yeah, just a, a last thank you to Alexander, and we will see
1: you guys. Thank you for happy of course it was an honor thank you for inviting me it was great to connect with you again to get back in this conversation and be able to just see each other face to face
0: and we will see you all next week